Hi, and welcome to the Bookish Besties podcast. We're excited you're here with us to talk all things books and reading. We are two friends brought together by our love of reading. I'm Diane and adore my beach life in Charleston, South Carolina with my family and dogs. Reading has been a pleasure my whole life. I read to travel when I cannot leave home, to escape when life gets to be too much, to learn even when I'm not in school anymore, and to make new friends on the pages of stories and by talking to those who share my passion. And I'm Mary, a northerner living in the frozen tundra of Madison, Wisconsin. I've been an avid reader for as long as I can remember and make a point to read every day while still balancing the challenges of work and life. My ideal is to be curled up by the fire with the dog on my lap, a glass of wine on the end table, and a good book in my hands. We would be most grateful if you would rate and review our podcast. It really does help others to find us. Thank you so much and happy reading. Hi readers, and welcome to a special edition of the Bookish Besties podcast. Today, Diane and I have the pleasure of interviewing international bestselling author, Kristen Harmel. Kristen is the author of several books, including The Sweetness of Forgetting, The Room on Room Amelie, and The Winemaker's Wife a book that we will be discussing today. Welcome, Kristen. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I just wanted to say, Diane and I both agree, we loved your book. We, we really did. <laughs> this was such a good, um, such a good and surprising read. Uh, you know, when I, when I started it, I didn't really know what to expect, but oh, I just, it was so lovely. Thank you. Thank you so much for saying that. I really appreciate that. That means yeah. a lot to me. Yeah, so uh, so for our, our listeners who have not yet read the book, um, can you just give us a little synopsis of what it's about? Sure, so The Winemaker's Wife is set in Champagne, France, both in the present day and during World War II. Um, and it is basically about three women, um, two in the past, one in the present, whose lives intertwine in a tale of love, loss, resistance, betrayal, and of course, because it's set in Champagne, France, of course, Champagne. <laughs> so it, it's about both the French resistance and um, and basically the art of making Champagne, the art, the history, and the mystery right. of making Champagne. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, when you were when you were doing this story and you were you were thinking about how. Um, the setting of it. How did you choose Champagne? And during this time period specifically, how, how did that come about? Well, you know, I've been writing about World War II in France for a long time. Um, I started off writing uh, chiclet novels um, back in, my first novel came out in 2006. So I was writing, you know, comedic women's fiction back then. But since 2012, I've been writing much more serious, sort of more upmarket stuff. Um, so in 2012, I wrote The Sweetness of Forgetting, which was set in Paris and was partially about a, uh, or set partially in Paris, which was about a woman who discovers that her grandmother has a secret past buried in the Holocaust. Um, and I lived in Paris for a little while when I was in my 20s. It's somewhere I go back to all the time. It, it is like the place of my heart and my soul. I mean, I, I, I love it there so much. Um, and I, having done all that research for the sweetness of forgetting, um, there were so many things I stumbled upon that didn't fit into that book. 
And the whole time I was writing that book, I thought, I kept thinking there's, there are more books than this. There are more books than this. And that was kind of before World War II had really exploded as a genre. Mm -hmm. um, so I didn't necessarily think that's what I was going to do. And I wrote The Life Intended, which was the book that followed that, which had nothing to do with World War II. And I loved that book, but the whole time I was writing it, I missed writing about World War II. So um, I've come back to that era several times. I've come back to France in World War II several times. But I keep writing about Paris because that was the city that I knew and loved. Um, but in my last novel, The Room on Rue Amelie, which, as we were saying um, before the broadcast started, is a little bit of a tongue twister. I feel like <laughs> I trip over that myself every, every couple times I mention it. But The Room on Rue Amelie came out in 2018, and that was about the French resistance in Paris. And after I wrote that, I thought, I wonder how active the French resistance was in Champagne, which is about an hour and a half outside of Paris, and is such an idyllic, peaceful place. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting and ironic if this place that we associate with celebration um, and, you know, just carefree bubbles um, was actually a hotbed of resistance? And it was. Um, so that kind of gave me the perfect jumping off point to write about. You know, it was yeah. so great. I had spent um, a semester, or part of my high school years in France studying oh, as an exchange student. And I remember taking a bus outside of the city and, and driving all the way out to Champagne and seeing the vineyards. And I, and I saw an interview that you did where you said, if those vines could tell a story, what story would they tell? And I remember thinking, some of them are so old, what they have seen in the changes in the French countryside. But I had no idea that that region of the country was so involved with the resistance. Well, you know, it, that's such a good point. And hey, thank you for doing so much research that you've already seen an interview with me talking about it. That's awesome. Good for you. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it's interesting. That region, when you go to that region, um, the history they talk about is World War I history. Because World War I decimated the area. The front during World War I was basically running through Champagne, mm -hmm. running through the vineyards of Champagne for the majority of the war. Um, and the capital city uh, of Plants, which is Reims, like, you know, mm -hmm. R-E-I-M-S, um, I think they were, I think it was something like out of I mean, it was more than 80% destroyed, significantly more than 80% destroyed. Like the whole society moved underneath the earth. And it was just, it's, it, they tell the story today because it's such a wonderful tale of resilience. Um, but they don't talk that much about World War II because I think the things that they lost during World War II sort of pales in comparison to what they lost during World War I. Um, but, you know, another interesting thing about Champagne, since you brought up, you know, if the vines could talk or, you know, yeah. whatever, um, I read an interesting sentence in a book called Champagne by journalists Don and Petey Cladstrup. It was one of the uh, books I used for my early research. Um, and they said that the ground in Champagne or the earth in Champagne has been soaked with perhaps more blood than anywhere else in the world. And that was stunning to me. I mean, it, there were, it basically every war you remember, every European war you remember from history class, it marched through Champagne at some point and had bloody battles there. So, I mean, who would think this place that, I mean, when I think of champagne, I just think of popping a cork and having a great time, right? Great celebration, but, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. You know, one of the things that, um, so I also did some research too, you know, just about your background. And <laughs> one, of the, one of the things, we were talking a lot about research and that was one of the things that kind of struck me is that this book was so well-researched. And when I was, you know, creeping on your profiles all over uh, social media, <laughs> 
Um, I noticed that your background is in journalism. And with that in mind, how did you approach telling this story? Um, In a very paranoid, fact-checking, heavy manner. Um, (laughs) I I think um, having a background in journalism has helped all of my books um, that are set in historical times. Um, Because there are so many details you need to figure out and nail down. Um, And you need to be willing and able to ask people the things that you don't know, which is sort of a, a basic, a basic thing you learn in journalism, right? Like you can't, you can't just Wikipedia something and assume that that's, the, you know, the facts. <laughs> right. you have to have multiple sources and back it up and whatever. Um, but I think the same things that have assisted me uh, in knowing how to research have also made me like a nervous wreck about everything. So, um, you know, I think back to journalism school where one fact error, I mean, what, like if you spelled someone's name one letter wrong, you would fail the assignment and like you failed an assignment and your grade letter would be reduced I mean this is 20 years back in journalism (laughs) school but um I think I still have that paranoia like oh my goodness if I get if I if I'm wrong about the color that they painted their headlights for blackout you know in Paris like the readers won't believe anything so I'm very paranoid about every detail but um for the winemaker's wife um I, I did a lot. I, uh, I I felt like I had to have a good grasp of exactly what was happening in Champagne at that time. But because it's about a family of winemakers, um, it, 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 I also needed to know everything about how Champagne would have been made at the time. Um, so I really had sort of two research fronts, which both of which were really fascinating. I started out doing a lot of reading. Um, and then based on that reading, I kind of had general ideas of things. And then I went to Champagne and had a lot of interviews with people, including winemakers, including historians. Um, including experts from the various champagne houses. I mean, it, it, that was just a fascinating research trip. But uh, one of the interesting things I had to do, because I just couldn't nail down how champagne was made in the 1940s. Um, uh, I, one of the interesting things that I had to do was actually translate a textbook from the 1960s. It was the oldest textbook I could find past 1940 um, for how to make champagne, but it was only written in French. And I don't speak very fluent French. So um, oh. I actually had to have, I had to pay to have this textbook translated roughly from French into English. Mm. <laughs> so I can understand it. But if you wow. need me to make champagne, I'm your girl. I, I know all the things now. <laughs> Um, so with, with the, the champagne that you talked about, um, at the Maison Chavot, did I say that right? I don't speak, yeah, I don't speak French either, so I can't, I'm terrible with my accent, yeah. Um, so this is, it's fictional, it's not an actual, uh, winery, uh, champagne house, but... If you had to say what their champagne tasted like, which one do you think it would be closest to? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, you know, my my real answer would be that it's um, it is probably uh, close to a champagne that you've probably never heard of called. Um, Champagne Bergerino Merion, okay. <laughs> and the reason you've never heard of it, I'm not being a wine snob, yeah. is because they don't they don't distribute it in the United States. So, okay. um, but it it is the winery that I or the Champagne House that I visited to do the majority of my research about winemaking in Ville d'Omange, which is the real town where the where most of the book takes place. So, because they're growing the grapes there and making them into champagne right there on their grounds, like the grapes they source from the area and make right there. 
to me, that's probably the closest taste because the grapes really have like the, not just the grapes themselves, but the proportions of the grapes you use have a lot to do with mm -hmm. how the champagne turns out. Um, and the primary grapes in um, champagne are Pinot Meunier, um, uh, uh, Pinot Noir, and Chardonnay. No, Chardonnay? Now I'm losing my mind about it. I think those are the three. Um, but it, it, you can pretty much blend them in any way. And I think if I'm remembering correctly, there are eight acceptable grapes, but those are the, the primary three. Um, but so, so they, it, however they would blend it there would probably be the closest to how my characters would do it. But if we're talking about champagnes you can get on the U.S. market, um, probably... Um, probably Veuve Clicquot. Um, that is also where I did a lot of my research. Um, I've always liked their champagne. And I think it's a really reasonable, um, accessible champagne um, for a lot sure, of yeah. US champagne drinkers because it's kind of on the lower end of the price spectrum, but it's still very well made and very award-winning. Um, and that's usually what I drink when I'm, you know, when I'm drinking champagne, which is yeah. far too frequently. <laughs> <laughs> You see that the bad the bad thing about writing a book about champagne is you just constantly excuse yourself like this is research. research. <laughs> You're gonna have it's so many people excuse. trying to be your assistant, Kristen, because they can be like going with you to France and tasting all these champagnes. Everybody's gonna want to exactly, be your assistant. Exactly, and, and you know, I I wish I could tell you that self control kicked in and I just stopped tasting when I got back from France. But no, it was like <laughs> I should probably too because it might taste different and that might influence the writing and i don't know what my excuse is now that the book is out but you know corona it's, it's the memories <laughs> bringing it back exactly that's right <laughs> yeah, no i was yeah, I, that was the one that i was thinking that it tasted like when i was yeah there you go okay or the the vuplicote so that's again my french is is very poor, but that's I'm the one sure I always thought. My French accent is terrible. It's shameful that I lived there and never learned how to speak properly. <laughs> yeah, I, I am ashamed. <laughs> um, so just to, to kind of like, I, I, I'm sorry, Diane, do you have anything? No, you're good, Mary. You're good. Okay. Um, so, you know, you were talking a little bit in, in your book, you have two characters, uh, Inez and Theo, and in the book, you were talking about how they were kind of, during this time, during the occupation, they kind of buried their heads and just went a, about their business, um, trying to be like, it's going to be okay, everybody's fine. And then other characters were like, no, this is not okay. Um, and, you know, eventually one character evolves. I'm not going to do any spoilers, but one character <laughs> evolves and the other does not. Um, you know, the thing about it was that it was so, like, prevalent to what's going on right now you know you see a lot of people that are you know with with everything we're still in this quarantine pandemic time right now a lot of people are very you know anxious and some people are just like going about their business so I, I'm not necessarily wanting you to speak about what's going on right now but how did you approach that with your characters I mean did you base that off somebody or what how did you how did you come up with that well it First of all, that's a really good question and a um, really good assessment of the characters and what happens in the book. So thank you for that. Um, you guys have a really good podcast. I'm really enjoying this. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, all right. So I, I guess I would say that in creating the characters, it's interesting to me because one of the 
one of the main criticisms I've heard from readers about this book is, oh, I don't like Inez, who's sort of the, the main the main character, and um, or, or what, one of the main characters in the past. And you know what? I don't blame them. I didn't like Inez at the beginning either, but not all of us start off as likable. And I feel like um, she is someone who, through the course of the novel, grows up. Um, and she doesn't realize at the beginning that she has growing to do. And that was a challenge for me because I have always in the past written characters who are like, you know, so perfect and like maybe bad things are happening around them, but they have to like step up to the challenge and they're filled with inner goodness. And my editor always says like, you have to give them flaws. And so like the flaws that you see in my previous characters are ones I've like loaded in after the first draft. In this book, Inez was just like, sort of immature and selfish at, from the beginning. Um, so as a writer, that was sort of a, a different thing for me. But I think what's interesting is I, I sort of wonder what would have happened with these characters if the war hadn't come, if this book had been set in, you know, 1950, and then everything had just kind of posted along okay for the next 30 years. I don't think that they all would have changed. I think they all would have kind of gone on being unhappy and, you know, staying in the situations they were in and not really growing. And, you know, you mentioned the book in light of what's going on now with this with this pandemic and this crisis and you know staying home and as you were talking i was thinking you know there's there i've read that um or read or heard that the divorce rate has actually gone up since this started or like or not the divorce rate but people filing for divorce because suddenly it's these people who are stuck at home and they realize they kind of don't really like each other right <laughs> they can't stand each other they want something different um and i think that's what crisis does to us it makes it makes you um, it, it, it forces you to evaluate where you are and to change. And it's, it, to me, it, it, it asks you the question of like, which direction do you want to go? And I think that that was sort of a choice that these characters had to make in this book, whether they knew they were making it or not. And some stay in place and some evolve. And I think that that is something that we're going to be seeing, um, you know, in, in the next few months in our country too, or in, in, a, in our world right now. I mean, I think we're at another turning point in history. And I think that, um, you know, some people will rise and meet the challenge and become better and stronger. And I think some people will stay static. And, and I think that's just what happens in moments in history like this. Did that answer the question or did I just go yes. off? No, but you know, I read that, I read that same statistic too. And I think it was in China that the divorce rate had started to really oh, rise. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's where I read it. I mean, I'm sure it's happening here. It, it will happen here too, but yeah. <laughs> you know, it will be interesting to see how some of your characters took the opportunity to grow in some either didn't or weren't capable of it, right? So it will be interesting to see as as we all come out of this at the end of the summer or whenever, what changes, you know, I was talking to the girls, this, my girls this morning, the two kids that are here at home and we are very aware of the illness and the horrible conditions for so many people, but our house is really peaceful right now. Like the weather yeah. is nice, we're reading books, they're getting finished with their schoolwork early. I don't know that they're going to be all that excited <laughs> to resume <laughs> chaos, you know, mm -hmm. this slower. So we have been talking about what can we take forward from this slower, this forced slowing, yeah. because there are lessons to be learned in all crises. Right. And, and hopefully we can, we can be on the growing end, not the stagnating end. <laughs> 
totally right. Yeah, I think it's going to change the way we all interact with each other and the way we interact with our families and, you know, that our, our loved ones and everybody around us. I, I think it's going to change. It's like, a, it's basically like a reset as a society, right? And, mm-hmm. and it's one that maybe we really needed. Maybe we did. Yeah. You know, I yeah. do think we were talking to some authors. Um, I was talking to Jamie Brenner this morning and she was saying how, you know, I, I, I hope nothing ever replaces authors going out and touring independent bookstores and, and getting their books out there because there's nothing better than going to hear an author read their own words and talk about their story. But, you know, I think that this Zoom meetings or FaceTime things is going to stick around. Yeah, it, I, I mean, I, it, it already is sort of this whole new world, right? And, yeah. and I think we never realized, I mean, I, I don't know if, if we necessarily would have done this this way, you know, six right, months yeah. ago, right? Like right. It, and and it's sort of it. And, but I I feel like just talking to the two of you now that I do know you and I that I've met you in person. And do you know what That's I mean? Right. It's, it's I think it's opening up new avenues, and this is a lot cheaper than travel. Sure. <laughs> right? And you can stay with your little guy. It's all good. You have something exciting. I know, I know exactly. Selfishly, I'm like I don't have to leave my four year old. Yeah. Well, you know, and for me, it's like my social life has exploded now. <laughs> I have, I have like several, I'm not bragging here, but I have several Zoom <laughs> meetings like with family and friends like throughout the week, you know, just so we can still have that connection, you know, so it's, yeah, my, my boyfriend even mentioned that. He's like, you're on, you're on Zoom a lot. I'm like, I know. What's, what's going on? <laughs> it's great. Yeah. Kristen, you have something exciting happening in the Facebook world next, starting next week, right? Tell us about that. Well, yeah, and, and, and that's actually, it's a great segue from what we were just talking about because um, this whole thing originated. Uh, so basically what we're doing is Wednesdays from now through the end of May, um, it's, I think it's going to be every Wednesday night at 7 o'clock Eastern. Okay. Uh, five of us authors who all have new or upcoming releases are going to be getting together for a weekly happy hour um, where we answer reader questions um, we talk about our books. We talk about books we're excited about, including debut authors. We really want to give a push to debut authors right. who are coming out at a tough time. Yeah. But the main thrust of it is going to be to support independent bookstores um, mm-hmm. because we all feel really concerned. Like all these stores that have been um, so supportive of us, mm-hmm. like now need our support, right? Like right. so. Um, so every week we're going to be supporting a different independent bookstore and pushing our like the people who are tuning in to that store for like special incentives and special sales and things like that. But it's just going to be like a fun half hour every week where we give right tips, we talk about books, we kind of have our like little you know toast together, whatever. <laughs> it's just a fun happy hour. But it's going to be Mary Kay Andrews, Mary Alice Monroe. Um, Patty Callahan Henry, um, Christy Woodson Harvey, and myself, um, with special guests dropping in here and there. So, right, like the Queens of the South, plus me, who technically lives in the South, but <laughs> sure. writes about World War II. So, I'm, I'm the oddball of the group. Um, but, you know, it's funny that we were talking about this because the, the way this all got started was um, Mary Alice Monroe emailed a bunch of her friends with new releases who have had to cover their, who have had to cancel their book tours um, and just said like, hey, how can we support each other? How can we support independent bookstores? And Mary Kay Andrews had the idea of doing just a casual happy hour among us. And that turned into this idea of like, hey, what if we broadcast this live and used it to support the stores that we're worried about? Brilliant. um, Brilliant. Yeah, we're super excited. And it's just like five friends, like trying to, 
do some good for other mm-hmm. authors and for bookstores. So hopefully, right. hopefully it'll be something fun to tune into. It's going to be on Mary Kay Andrews um, Facebook page. I believe that's where at least that's where we're going to be starting it um, every Wednesday at seven. Okay. We will definitely I, tune in. Yeah, I'm going to be there for that. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, one thing, just to, to wrap up here, you know, one thing that I rarely do with whenever I'm reading a book, and, and Diane, I, I, I don't know if you do, we've never really talked much about author's notes in books. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I'm done with a story, I'm done with the story, I'm moving on. And for this one, I didn't want the story to be done. So I, I read the author's note <laughs> along with it. And I there was something that really stood out to me at the end that I want the readers to to hear, you know, when they're listening. Cause I think it was just so, it was just so fantastic. So I'm gonna read a little bit from the author's note. Finally to you, the reader, I hope that the next time you open a bottle of champagne, whether it's to celebrate a milestone or simply to enjoy on a weeknight, you'll think of the light and the darkness, the tra- tragedy and the triumph that are part of every glass. After all, those tantalizing bubbles in your champagne represent a tradition of courage, a spirit of hope, and the lesson that if you continue to persevere against the odds, you might just make magic. Beautiful. And then something in French that I can't say. So, <laughs> <laughs> but I loved that. I loved that. So right. I just want that to. Uh, I wanted to leave that with our, with our our readers. So, you know, can, can I ruin that beautiful feeling by just saying, as I was listening to that, I was like, wow, I really wish I could just talk like that on the fly. Because like <laughs> when I talk in conversation, I sound like an idiot. But like. <laughs> If I, maybe I just need to like for podcasts from now on. I just need to read read like pre written speeches full of like hope and light and inspiration. Would that be better? Well, now I'm I think you're fantastic. Today, yeah, you so. did a fabulous job, Kristen. And now I'm going to totally put you on the spot because we end with a rapid fire yes. questions. Yeah, oh, we have no. rapid fire questions. These are great. They're oh, great. They, they, let, let, let my idiot make their comment. Like, just began and explode all over the place. Let your light shine, girl. <laughs> okay, what is your favorite word? <laughs> I don't know. No, 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 I can't do this rapid fire. My favorite word, Noah, my son's name. <laughs> Perfect. That's funny because um, Christy Whitson Harvey, her son Will, was in the room when we were doing this, and he said, Mom, you should just say Christy, because that's your favorite. <laughs> that's a good one, too. Yeah. You know what? I, I like Christy Woods and Harvey, so can mine be Christy, too? She's yeah, sure. <laughs> Noah and Christy are tied. <laughs> Who's your favorite fictional hero or heroine? That's, I don't know. These are so hard. Oh, my God. I'm never prepared for these. I don't know. I don't have a good answer for that. Noah could work again. No, but he's my best meal. Um, gosh, I I don't know. Um, you can skip. Oh, you guys are gonna hate me. No, no, no. Oh no. How about this one? What are you reading now? How how about you know what Nancy Drew? I love the Nancy Drew books. Uh, There you go. Nancy Drew is a great answer. (laughs) What are you reading now? Um, I just finished reading um, two books that I am blurbing that are coming out soon. One was called The Seagate. Um, it is by a writer called Jane Johnson, and it's coming out in the fall. Um, and the other one was The Lions of Fifth Avenue by Fiona Davis. 
uh, which oh, is sure. coming out the exact same day as my next book, The Book of Lost Names. And both books are about librarians. So, and, and I adore Fiona. So she and I are talking about like, you know, doing something together because our books are both about like books and the love of books. So oh. um, but The Lions of Fifth Avenue was fantastic. I would highly recommend it. And tell me the date of your new book's release. When's your pub date for that? Uh, July 21st. So so Fiona and I are both July 21st. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, maybe we can get you at our library down here together to do an event once we can yes, all move freely I, about I the cabin. Yeah. <laughs> okay. When you're reading a book, are you a completist or a DNFer? Do you, do you? Oh, uh, um, I, I know by page two, which I'm going to do. And 99% of the time it's completist. And I have a really hard time once I've started a book, not finishing it. So it, it, my theory on books is always, um, if it's been published, there's clearly something that's good about it. Right. And even if I'm not loving it, I need to keep reading to figure out what 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 is so great about it do you know what I mean yeah where are the authors going to take you every book every book is good and I think we can learn and grow from the books that don't necessarily immediately appeal to us so Mm. and and usually by the time you finish you found why the book has appealed to other people does that make sense for sure yeah okay this is your last one what is the best money you've ever spent as a writer on your craft oh um, okay, so every summer I go to a writing retreat, which, you know, that's out of pocket. Um, and I've been doing that for years and it's with several young adult writers, which is not the genre I write in, but they are my soul sisters. I mean, they are, it, it is, it is, um, and I am probably not going to be able to go this summer, but you know, even mm. if, even if all of this is over, cause the week we usually do it is the week my book is coming out. So, okay. um, I think it's probably not going to work out regardless. Uh, it was started by Wendy Tolliver, who is a young adult writer and it's, um, Alison Noel, Alison Van Diepen. Linda Gerber, um, Emily Wings- Wingsmith, am I leaving anybody out? And Jay Asher used to go to. So um, the, the whole the whole group of us, we just got so close. Um, and, and they are the they are the people I can tell anything to, like my hopes, my fears, my dreams, the things I'm terrified of as a writer, the you know the the things I hope for my my writing future. Um, and I always come out of that week a better writer and a better person. And I, and I hope I do the same for them. It's just a wonderful group. So that every summer is an expensive trip because it's always in Utah or Idaho, and I live in Florida. Um, but they are they are the best, some of the best people I know. And um, yeah. You know, a best, lot of those, we have a great um, thing at, with the Charleston County Library called Y'all Fest, and many of those authors yeah. are um, pivotal anchors of that, of the Y'all Fest, and they, they come to oh, Charleston awesome. every year. It's in November. Um, oh, right. Yeah. You know what? I know Allison Noel has talked about it. Yes. Um, Jay Asher. Jay, Jay yeah. Has too. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. That's great. Well, that's a fabulous thing to spend money on for sure. It is. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Kristen, for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time and talking about your book, The Winemaker's Wife, which is currently available uh, on hardcover and on paperback. So call your local indie and get on it because it was amazing. Well, thank you so much again, Kristen. We were honored and we can't wait for July 21st for the new book. Yes. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. Great. This has been another episode of the Bookish Besties podcast. Bookish Besties is a production of Tidal Wave Books, LLC, 
and is hosted by Diane Barnett and Mary Meist. Produced by Lily Barnett. Find us on Instagram at Bookish Besties Podcast. Thank you for joining us in talking about all things bookish. We will see you next time. Thank you.